Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest, My guest today is Fiona Helmsley. Fiona's writing can be found online at websites like The Rumpus, Jezebel, The Weaklings, The Harpin, Pank, and in various anthologies like Ladyland and The Best Sex Writing of the Year. Her most recent book is a collection of essays called Girls Gone Old. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Fiona Helmsley. Fiona, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, I this is the first book of yours I've read, Girls Gone Old, and now I want to go back and re, re, read everything else you've written because the prose is really interesting and elegant and you know elegant. It's inter- yeah it, it is i mean there's some real there's a kind of it, it's interesting too because you were about the same age uh, i'm actually a little older than you but but you were just that couple years actually you're much more aware of the presence of the internet and so it's interesting one of the things about the book is that i i think for everybody growing up in the age of the internet and and this sort of social media presence like we all have like augustine says like we have people say augustine created the inner self right we'll have this inner self and then this external self and online it's like now we have this avatar self right and so much of your prose is so conscious of the self-curation and That is just an interesting mirror for, I think, anybody that's online at all. We all do this, right? And you're a a lot more, you're very conscious and explicit about the self-curation project that was your adolescence and and emerging into adulthood, right? Well, when I first got on the internet, I did not have that kind of awareness. And I think it was so much more fun then. (laughs) Like before I became aware of the internet as as like a tool, when I just thought of the internet as a place to go and communicate with other people and maybe put up some of my writing, um, I definitely felt much more free. And I now, nowadays, I don't enjoy on, the online world that much anymore. I, I tend to delete my, my Facebook page for months at a time um, because I think that I'm so aware now of um, how people use use the internet to, um, to curate themselves and to present themselves to the world. Does that disturb you? Um, it's, it's not as much fun. Um, it, I, I mean, the internet is this tool um, and, and you can use it um, as in the writing world, the world that I'm in, um, you know, people want to get their writing out there. So they're very aware of, you know, um, crafting personas and I mean, I just, I enjoy the internet, internet so much more when it wasn't about sharing and likes and, and, and commenting, um, you know, when we weren't aware of how much it could be used as a tool. So like the live journal days, this is like the wild, wild west of the internet. Like my wife tells the story of her younger brother when they got like AOL and stuff like that. These are early days. Of the internet. He crafted a persona. He was like, uh, early 30. He's like, you know, probably 13 at the time or something. He was an early 30s lobster fisherman uh-huh. in New England, uh-huh. and he would do weather research reports on right. the tides so that he sounded authentic. Right. Oh, that's <laughs> funny. Like, oh, it's, it's a choppy day at the seas today. Right. But it's interesting that there was a sort of Wild Westness back then, right? You talk about in Live Journal, and even you talk about how like your goal was you, nobody could take a selfie. That was just not a thing that referred to sort of autoeroticism or something, and that 
you needed a webcam, right? right? And then you have this crazy story where you wind up actually agreeing to do like a nude photo shoot with this guy who you knew on LiveJournal because he had a webcam. <laughs> I mean, it's so pathetic. <laughs> but I mean, it, in that story, I'm, I was trying to, I left New York and I wanted people to think that I was doing better than I had been when I was there. So, I mean, it seemed to me sensible that the way to do that would be to have like, you know, a hot picture of myself. <laughs> to post on live journal that was like my solution to you know maybe um you know doing something uh positive for my reputation <laughs> or something i mean I, when i left it was sort of in tatters and and i thought like a hot photo might be you know the the, the might, might do something to help that and, and something we all take for granted right now right <laughs> that everybody's got like a really high definition camera in their pocket right like back that that was like arduous to get a picture of yourself yeah. That could then be turned into a digitized right. format. You could That was like you had to go on an adventure just to do that. Right. I mean, yeah, now we just do it. Our cameras do it automatically for us. Yeah. I really had um, you know, like webcam envy. <laughs> of, Who doesn't? Uh, you know. Who doesn't? So, <laughs> could you say a little bit about the tatters that led you to sort of need to create a a better curated image that you were really experiencing when you left New York? Um, well, the last few years of my life there, um, you know, I, I was a heroin addict. Um, and that was manageable for a while <laughs> until I, I brought Xanax. I, I, into, into, I've into, never <laughs> heard someone say, it was managed. It was the Xanax that killed me. I mean, well, there's, a, there's another essay in the book, too, where I write about how, um, you know, I had a therapist at a rehab say to me, um, you know, you, you can't do intravenous drugs socially. And, um, you know, I say in the essay that I it was seemed important to me to prove her wrong. <laughs> like it seemed like I, I really wanted to um, get her to believe that, yes, you could do it socially. You could. And that essay is a little bit of, of, about that, trying to I mean, people don't, I mean, there's lots of stories that have to do with intravenous drug use, um, but it, it doesn't really go into like the everyday, <laughs> um, the, 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 the bland generalities of intravenous drug use um, and how that you can do intravenous drugs socially. Yeah, and <laughs> the, uh, the, the opioid ep epidemic that we're experiencing, right, in this country has testified to the fact there's got to be people doing it like that, right? right? Everybody know, yes. can't be laying around yeah. in an isolated days in some, right. you know, like uh, right. dilapidated state, you know, uh, uh, structure or something. Just right. statistically, a lot of people got to be functioning like, <laughs> and doing it. I'm sorry, but I'll go back to your question. I'm going to try really hard not to go off on, uh, on tangents. Um, you can go off on any tangent <laughs> you want. I'm going to try not to laugh at myself um, as much as I am. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I had been, I was a drug addict for 10 years. And um, my last few years in New York, um, you know, was when it, it, it completely, it, you know, it took over my life and I stopped being really able to function. Um, but in and, and Xanax played a, a, a big role in that. Um, so, I, you know, eventually you get to the point where you don't go out with your friends, uh, you isolate. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I stopped seeing people that I had been friendly with and was just hanging out with the people that I got high with. Um, so I had gone back to Connecticut in an attempt to try to get my life together and I had gotten on live journal and, um, you know, tried to show my friends back in New York 
um, that I was, you know, functioning <laughs> better than I had been. It's interesting, though, because <laughs> that is such a common human experience. Like you, you don't have to leave a, a metropolitan area where you thought, you know, you were going to make a name for yourself or something and find yourself crippled by some sort of substance struggle or something to, to do that. This is what everybody does all day, right? On social media. I mean, we do it at, at work. We do it at school. We're always trying to tell people, we're always trying to convince somebody a lot of the time, I think anyway, that we're doing a little better than we are or right. that we're a lower risk project that we are. Than, right. than we are or we're a little more lovable than we feel <laughs> a little right? more lovable yeah yeah no and abs- absolutely i mean uh, i mean is it, is it oprah with our best selves um i mean the internet obviously you know absolutely gives us this you know opportunity to present to the world our ideas of what our, our best self should be you know yeah you, you also you know you open with this story the, you know, the first essay in the book is about like this awful experience you had with your icon and it's funny because i was thinking like for some reason the internet stuff just jumped out at me a lot but i was thinking my icon hates me because you think of this these icons when you first get to this desktop sort of apple way of negotiating computers where every uh, everything is like but you this is someone you admired who you kind of tried to emulate and the experience of actual encounter with her was pretty awful well it's funny um when i grew up uh i was very influenced by punk rock and also um, by Riot Girl when when that came around in the 90s, the bands that were associated with that. And I was thinking recently um, about how many of the women that I looked up to, um, for example, um, Courtney Love and Lydia Lunch, um, you know, and the women in Babes in Toyland, and they all hated each other. <laughs> and they were all very open about the fact that they didn't like each other. Um, and uh, it's it, it, it just kind of interesting, um, you know, the, these women who are held up as, you know, kind of icons, and they were all my icons, and they were just all so open about the fact that they did not like each other. Yeah, it's, it's, it's and that's sort of this kind of, it's almost like the essay has this like coming of age feeling that, that and yet... It, it doesn't, you don't strike me as a cynic. No, I don't think I'm cynical at all. I, I'm not. Um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about this the other day. I write to definitely figure out what I think about something. You know, I have ideas um, going around in my head, but when I, when I sit down to write, that's when I discover what I actually think about something. Yeah, there, there's a sense of, of on the wayness in your prose that you're, you're taking folks on a journey. I mean, are you an external processor in life? I mean, do you find yourself, are you an internal processor that then that, that, that the mode of internal goes to the writing or is it, do you find yourself externally processing a lot? Well, I'm constantly, um, you know, all day long, especially with, with iPhones now and portable tech. I mean, I always used to have notebooks. Um, and if a thought came to me or something that I wanted to flash, flush out more later, I would always write it down. I use, um, my phone all the time to to constantly write things down um uh i don't know i mean i've i i think i have a lot of empathy as i i don't know i, I don't i'm a little afraid to say that because it, i think that that would be the kind of thing if somebody else said to me i would be i would be suspicious of that person i mean you'd be like <laughs> bullshit you're not empathetic no one empathetic says they're empathetic right um but uh yeah i 
I, I'm constantly trying to figure out what is going on in the world. You know, I, I found something that you wrote in the second essay of the book, which is right. The, the, I guess, could we call that the titular essay, Girls Gone Old? This yes. is the title. I'll say the namesake of the book. So it's whatever. I don't know right. what the technical term for that is. But you say this. I don't trust people when it comes to what they read. I work with books and know that most people don't take many risks. When it comes to books, most people either, one, read what their friends read, two, heed the advice of disembodied strangers who sometimes have vested interest in what they are hyping so glowingly online and in newspapers slash magazines, three, equate the quality of the writing with the amount of money it's made for the author slash publisher. And then you actually, on the heels of that, make a, a confession about your own appearance. And you say that the way you've dealt with this distrust is using your body. The thought being that if you, as a potential reader, found me physically attractive, you would be more likely to read my writing. You say it feels worse to admit to having done this than it ever felt to do it. Well, I think um, so many of us women, not you and I, but generalize us, um, do that. Um, I mean, I think we, we do it so casually that, you know, we may not even realize that we're doing it with any kind of strings attached to it. But with that, that little segment there, I, I do work with books. And I see every day, um, <clears throat> I actually work at a library, um, you know, people take out books by James Patterson and Clive Cussler. Um, and then, you know, they come in two weeks later and they can't, can't remember whether or not they read the book. Um, you know, the, a large segment of the reading population, I think, reads just to escape. And that's fine. That's, um, that's, t- that's completely valid. Um, but also, I say in there, um, you know, he the, he the advice of disembodied strangers, um, especially in the small press where I come from, um, books and what you read um, can be used as like accessories, um, you know, accessories to demonstrate um, your personality, um, wh- how people want to think of you as a as a thinker. Um, so you, you, you take, you do battle with those two things, people reading to escape and then people reading to, to demonstrate something about themselves. Um, it, it can get, it can be very hard to get, um, you know, people to, 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 to read. Yeah. And do your coworkers read your stuff? Do people that your patrons in the library read your stuff? Um, no, I, I try to keep that. I try to keep that pretty separate. Okay, so so do you write pseudonym, pseudonym, pseudonymously? Um, yeah, but I didn't. Fiona Helmsley wasn't. Um, I, it wasn't something I created for my writing. Um, when I was younger, I was into punk rock, and I had done zines. Um, and it was a name that I had used then. Um, so all I, I could think I, of is Leona Helmsley. I, yeah, well, that's that's what you're going for. You know, um, the the cultural kind of reference. So people don't know you're like a superheroine. I mean, Fiona Helmsley is that you know the it's like you're you're mild mannered librarian and mom by day and super literary figure by night. I guess, sort of, maybe. I'm assuming that you don't work like second shift at the library, though. Maybe this is maybe it's a late night library. <laughs> no, I know. I I'm usually there during the day, though. Sometimes I work at night. Yeah, and you know it, what I what struck me when you say it doesn't. It never felt as you you say it didn't feel. Uh, it felt worse having done this or admitting that you've admitting done this, sort of, right? Than it ever felt when you yeah. were doing it. Why? What, what, what is that? Can you can you unpack that? 
<laughs> because I, I just think that that's the way um, a, a lot of women try to navigate the world. I mean, these are the cards that were dealt to us. Um, you know, we're going to be treated as objects of desire or objects that, that don't meet that standard of desire, um, whether we participate in it or not. And I, I guess I chose to, to, to harness that as, you know, like a, an a advertising strategy, like Norman Mailer advertisements for myself. Um, you know, just playing into that very base interest that men and also women have um, <clears throat> when it comes to, you know, giving more validi validity to a person if they, um, you know, are desirable. Yeah, and, and throughout the book. Which isn't fair. It's not fair. It's not, and it's not a, a standard that I believe in in my, in my own life. It's not something that I play into. But, um, you know, you you want to get your work out there. You know, you want to get people's attention. Yeah, and, and throughout the book, in several essays, you, you are very clear and insightful in your description of a kind of misogyny and objectification of women and how that's felt for you as a woman. And yeah, also you're, you don't come off as puritanical or, uh, I mean, there, there, there is something you haven't, you, you strike, you, you, it seems you strike a balance between, Hey, I'm critical of this and the objectification. And yet I don't want to be decentralized. I don't want to, I don't want to sort of imagine I don't have an appearance and I, and, and I'd like to be desirable. I mean, you kind of, you, you seem to try to offer criticism of the misogyny and the sex without saying, okay, the answer to this is a disembodied kind of take on your own sexuality or appearance or dwelling in the world. Well, I also say in that essay too, um, you know, being desired is addictive. It's also a good feeling. Um, you know, I, there's n nothing the matter with finding that, appealing um so it it is i mean the essay is just more of the awareness of doing that and also in the essay it marks the first time that i've been called i was called old by someone else which was you know an interesting experience and and brought up these feelings in me you know um like i i say in the essay um you know i talk about a friend of mine who had told me about you know joe joe francis and girls gone wild and um you know that they wouldn't put anybody in that video series who was over 25 and i i say that even though i think he's disgusting and i think you know the idea of somebody being over 25 is not desirable as disgusting it still felt strange to to think of myself as caught cut off from anything, um, no matter uh, you know the scumminess of the person making the decree. That's always I tell my my wife like when that she hates it when like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door. It's like oh, so I was like I actually and they don't come to the door. I feel like what you don't think I could help the team? <laughs> like I want to be recruited, you know? Like right. I I want I want to be proselytized. You know, it makes me feel wanted. Right? No, I know what you, you mean. Also, you also say that maybe as a woman, there's nothing you can do. Your physicality will always be a part of the equation, and it's better to be the one in the driver's seat of the machinery. <clears throat> and I absolutely believe that. I mean, that's absolutely true. Um, you know, by default, um, you know, that's going to play into the way, um, you know, people look at you and, and uh, uh, evaluate you. So, I mean, knowing that, why, why not harness it for yourself? I mean, as, at least as, as long as you can, you know? Yeah, and, you know, you as you write about 
I mean, you write pretty candidly about your own sexual history and your sense of being attractive, or, you know, and, and how that has perception of if you're wanted, if, you, if you're feeling attractive and how that has sort of affected you in different journeys of your life. You, yeah, you, you, you write about sex in a way that I think everybody is looking for human connection, right? And it, and it seems like normally, I mean, it, it seems like in tr- more traditional cultures, at least a romanticized thing is that intimacy's climax is in sexual intimacy. Now it seems like kids start with advanced, kinky, weird sexual activity, and maybe eventually, after a bunch of partners, they get to emotional intimacy, right? And this is, and it, it just seems like so many people are walking around uh, with, with split off from themselves because of sexual experiences. And you do a good job of telling the story of, of seeking integration in your own, in your own search for intimacy. Well, I know, I know for me, um, I was always very curious about sex. Um, and when I was in high school, that was like one of my goals. I wanted to lose my virginity and it wasn't. And try, and try LSD, right? You said (laughs) I had two goals. Try (laughs) LSD and lose my virginity. Um, so it was almost like a, a burden almost, which, which sounds strange, but it was, I was definitely more of like a, a sexual tourism <laughs> on my part. Um, you know, I wanted, I wanted, I was so curious that, um, you know, emotional connection really did not play into it at all. Actually, I think I thought that emotional connection would, would make it worse, which, which would sound strange. You know, I, I think I, I don't know. I think maybe I said it in my I wrote it in my last book, but I've always felt, which is horrible, which is like um, the collapse of, of, of maybe part of the American dream. But I've always felt um, more comfortable when I've had sex with people that I didn't have any feelings for. Is that no, you talk about <laughs> a How little sad. bit? Well, uh, well, I mean, it is what it is, right? We are, right. you know, we are who we are, right? right. <laughs> I mean, I think it's very honest. And I think there's probably a lot of people that share that experience and wouldn't say it. I want to take a quick break from my conversation with Fiona Helmsley to ask you a question. Do you like this podcast? Are you enjoying it right now? Do you want to help keep it going? If so, you can sponsor this podcast by going to Patreon. If you just go to the podcast website, giveandtake.fireside.fm, you can find the link there. Several people have already done it, and they're helping keep this podcast going, and you can too. So before we continue with Fiona, I want to take a moment to thank the sponsors that are helping make this project go. Thanks to Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan Morseberger, and Josh Redder. Thank you all for being my Patreon sponsors. If you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out, please just go to Patreon dot forward slash scott kent jones and there you can find information about how to give if you give just five bucks a month you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future thanks again to my sponsors and please if you like this podcast consider becoming a patreon sponsor and now back to my conversation with fiona helmsley you you talk about a little in the book a little bit about working as an escort do you think that your penchant for like for sex with people that was emotionally a little distant did that prep you to be able to do that um 
I don't. If did it prep me? I or did it open up the possibility in a way like that? Hey, like there's. I I, I think they'd always for me it had always like from the beginning and it all it had been separated. Um. So I mean, it definitely wasn't a hindrance. Um. I don't. I mean, I had I I had initially gone into sex work because. Um, I, I thought it would be really great for me personally, um, you know, to put myself in these situations, um, and to, to be able to, to handle them. I thought it would, it would be empowering. Um, you know, I thought it was feminist and I still think it can be all those things. I mean, where I went wrong with it was that, um, you know, drugs became such a big part of it for me. Um, so and it's it's hard to say. These are hard questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also, you know, you you talk you tell a story about you say you know, one of the occupational hazards of writing candidly, like candid essays, is that sometimes partners like they're getting a oh, window yeah, yeah, into oh, your own sexual history. Right. Or it's, and this, right. and you're saying that this guy like wants to play out a fantasy, and you're like, wait, I'm hungry. I got a shower. I was thinking of that line when you're describing like the, there's this line in Caddyshack too, where someone calls Jackie Mason, and they say, "How are you doing?" He's like, "Terrible. I'm hungry, and I have to go to the bathroom." <laughs> and you're like, in your fantasies, these right. like the, the bodily reality. bodily limitations right. and fatigue the, the don't come in, and don't come into it at all. I mean, fantasies yeah. are. are- for the most part, devoid of, you know, the everyday banalities of, of being human. Um, but I, what I thought you were going to ask me was, this is where I thought you were going with that question, was um, if it's being a writer of personal essays, how it's affected my relationships. Um, <laughs> well, I, 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 that's been my mind, too, because I'm thinking, <laughs> like, on a first date. You know, like, if, uh-huh. is somebody has somebody read? I mean, do you, do you tell people that you've gone out with, like, on the front end about your writing as you're getting to know them. It it depends. Um, Like I'm pretty much totally enmeshed in the straight world now. Like there's no way around it. I mean, for periods of time I've had the straight world, but I've still had my friends from, um, you know, when I, when I did sex work or more friends related to, um, you know, my addiction. Uh, But I'm 40 years old. So um, now my life is really about, my work and my child and things related to that. Um, so it has become, I have become much more selective when it comes to um, who I share my experiences with. You said that before about a super, like, am I like a superhero? I mean, I wouldn't say I'm a superhero in that I'm changing the world, but I do have like two very separate identities. I have, you know, um, Fiona in the straight world and then, you know, Fiona, uh, writing her stories on the computer. Um, I don't, I don't know. Um, all of the relationships that I've had, I have confided um, in the person that, um, you know, I've had these experiences and that I write about them. Um, you know, there's been some varying reactions. Uh, you know, it, it, it has been hard. It does make for some difficulties. I mean, that, that's for sure. That's for sure. I overheard a, a boyfriend once um, uh, talking to somebody uh, on the phone about me, um, and it, he made me sound like I, I was a porn star or something. So, I mean, there's the way there's the way men sometimes. How did, how did that? How did that? How did that feel? Like, what, did, what was that? How did that feel? Horrible. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I, I know that I know that he genuinely um, cared about me, but you know, there's the way men perform for each other, and I, I think that that's what I was overhearing. 
like he was performing me <laughs> um in in terms that he thought that his friend would um you know uh, uh find appealing you know so it you, just, were like, you were it, like a trophy sort of yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's it's that that's that's degrading <laughs> And it makes me feel bad for the person. You know, I I, I feel bad for men a lot. <laughs> I mean, what, the, <laughs> what what they have to do to um, you know exist in the world. And I think you see in Donald Trump where all that goes so wrong. <laughs> um, so yeah, because no, your, your last essay t- talks Trump. about that. Yeah, your, your last essay talks about you know the and I'm a child of the '80s, right? And so it, uh, as I was reading it, I was like, yeah, she's so right. Like that this this. Oh, I mean, it, 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 it becomes what other qualities does he have? Like, what 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 did he ride to the White House on? I mean, just his wealth. Um, you know that he's got his this beautiful wife. Um, that he is so mean and so crude. Um, you know, I mean, you have to wonder what we as a society, when we're given uh, the option to show like what we really worship, what that would look like. Um, yeah, I, yeah I, and it's Donald almost Trump. like it was almost like Back to the Future when, like, when he's like, "Oh, who's president? Ronald Reagan, the actor. Who's Secretary <laughs> of State? Doris Day. You know, it is this kind of feel. You know, as I was reading that last time, I'm like, yeah, this is a Back to the Future feeling. Like, if somebody had came back in time to the '80s and said Donald Trump is the president, you'd, you'd be like, no, nah, this is like Back to the Future. This is this is sketch comedy. I mean, this isn't real, right? And what's so funny now too is. Over and over again, they, I mean, they make so many different excuses for him, but one of the big ones is, oh, you know, he's new to this. He's new to this. He's not from this world. Then what made you think? (laughs) What what, ever made you think? I mean, if he's so uh, unskilled at this, that he would be able to do a good job, you know? I mean, why did you make that huge leap of faith? Um, But it's really scary. And I'm totally... uh, addicted to it like i didn't go to bed last night until i'll use that as an excuse if i'm not really sounding like i'm up on everything um until two o'clock in the morning because i was out there watching the, the you know the healthcare debate um, no i'm the same way i watch every white house press briefing if i'm not yeah. doing anything i i i i i it's fascinating i mean it is really crazy political theater and and well, this guy's scaramucci i mean <laughs> The Mooch and that New York that New York Post article he did, you know, where like uh, right, I'm not like Steve Bannon su- sucking right. my own, and then and then the article says Bannon did not want to comment on this statement. Like I'm like I'm imagining Chris Lissa pick up the word. Hey Steve, um, uh, the Mooch says you're that you sit around and you're, you're sucking your own. Do you have yeah. a comment? <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 just insane and what also is insane is we don't know that he's gonna lose actually he hasn't even started his job yet he hasn't even because he's got all these um you know this bu- this business tie-up that needs to be cleared up before he can officially be hired by the administration but we don't even know if he's gonna lose his job for doing that i mean we cannot say everything is so up in the air everything that you're taught as a child about what's right and what's wrong and what's good values and what's bad values everything is so up in the air um, God, I just, I, I don't, I, and things have been so cheapened, so cheapened. I mean, and I, my heart beats out of my chest now that Kid Rock is like thinking about running for Senate because I mean, it's, we know it's possible. <laughs> um, we, we know it could happen. Um, yeah. So. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And in, in, you talk about giving your friend the art of the deal game. And then you ask these, it, you, you put these questions in the middle of the page. It's, it's, it's towards the early part of the essay. And I, 
I was wondering, are these questions from the Art of the Deal game? Because you're like, if you were a poor person, what kind of poor person would you identify as? A, proud, B, ashamed, C, grateful, D, angry. And the next question is, if you are not a poor person, how do you think the poor should feel? A, proud, B, ashamed, C, grateful, D, angry. Um, were, were those like from the game? No, no. Uh, to find that game now, I looked online. It's like the, the original board game. There's another one when The Apprentice came out. It's like a few hundred dollars. Um, I was trying to, um, I, me as a poor person, <clears throat> which is something I definitely identify as. I mean, the healthcare battle that I'm watching, that, that's my healthcare. Um, I was thinking of, you know, the way poor people are scapegoated um, uh, and, you know, emotions related to that. Like, um, you know, uh, <clears throat> was it Devin? Was it De- no, it was Jason Chavitz who said, you know, maybe uh, people, if people wouldn't have iPhones, they could have health care. Um, I was I was trying to get into those emotions, <laughs> um, you know, because yeah, you actually also just des- yeah, you describe like this really powerful conversation you have with somebody like at a pizza shop or right. something. Somebody's yeah. very blue collar and, and very much a Trump supporter. And you try to get inside the head and say, like, is this basically right well i feel less disadvantaged if i support him right like it is even though it's going to be against my economic interests i mean mean, and that was another one of the things that was just so ugly about this this election i mean it had to come down to that like people not wanting to think of themselves as the at the bottom of the barrel so here comes this man who's willing to demonize immigrants um who's willing to, to demonize other groups and, you know, make these people who had been so kicked around feel like they weren't the lowest anymore. Um, it was, it was just so ugly, so ugly. And it continues to be so ugly. Um, you know, what we've revealed about ourselves and it's not just people in Appalachia, you know, I mean, there were white women, my age who voted overwhelmingly for Trump. I mean, what's their excuse? Um, I don't know. And I also think that some of it was this real um, backlash, uh, obviously, uh, against Obama um, and, and maybe Obama as a black man. Um, so, I, geez, I just don't know. How, will our country recover from this? I mean, how, however he's, whether he does the four years or he's yanked out of there, um, I mean, what are things going to look like afterward? And what does it mean for our standing in the world? Um, what does it mean for for how we talk to our kids, um, you know, and what I hate also too, is we have to spend so much time talking about this man who is so toxic, such an ignoramus. Um, and we have no choice. We, we, we have to, we have to talk about him now because, you know, he's in control of our government. Um, so. Yeah. And that is, and it is interesting that, cause that is what, he kind of seems to be primarily motivated by oh, that, absolutely. People, that people absolutely. are talking about right. him. That, right. That's, that's I why mean, the mooch, he, you know, he's right. Yeah. It, it's just this weird melding of like, um, the mafia <laughs> and, and government and, and big business and, and just corruption and moral failing. And oh God, to be an American, <laughs> What what is it like as a mom? You, you know, you you have a little. You have a your son's twelve years old. Yes. Is it? Do you talk about this stuff with him? Well, what I have to say is beautiful about my child, um, and it's it's a product of where he we go. He goes to school. Is so many of his friends are from different countries. One of his best friends is from Pakistan. Another one's from Tibet. Um, 
So he, um, you know, he's, he, he has friends from all over the place, friends from all different walks of life. Um, uh, I, once though, I had, I had overheard him in the backyard playing with his friends and they were like doing some wall thing. Like, you know, um, you, you don't, you don't, you can't go past the wall. Um, we built the wall. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you're not allowed to pass by. And that was obviously overhearing things on the television. Um, and, you know, it's, I, it, it gave me pause, definitely. Like, whoa, what are you guys doing? What are you... Um, so, and then he's... And, and there's kids at school who, um, obviously, you know, they're getting it from their parents um, who are supporters of Donald Trump. And he's, you know, come home with questions about that. But I think what will make the, the biggest difference for, for him, though, is that he has all these different kinds of friends um, from all over the place. So he will think of people as people, not just threatening ideas, you know? Yeah. It's really interesting because this just, because I was thinking of Trump and one of the things that's, that's so characteristic of of him as a politician is he has not a lot of shame, right? So like most politicians would be afraid of being found out that they were lying or they were deceptive and it just doesn't, but you actually talk about in an essay in the book entitled My Inner Debbie Gibson, you talk about uh, the fact that you could stomach a lot of things. You were you have an exhibitionist kind of streak. There are all these, you know, all these things that that you could be sort of daring about. And yet your friend, your friend has a coloscopy bag and, and you're like, I could never, ever imagine yeah. somebody like, like imagining that. Right, the a natural I body defecate. Right. <laughs> I can write about my law breaking, but not my crap taking. Yeah, that was a yes. That was, that's <laughs> a great line. Yeah, <laughs> that that was a moment, you know, where I had to confront myself. Um, I don't know, you know. Actually, I think I do know. When I was young, um, I had a, a family member say, <laughs> "This is horrible." Um, I heard him say about somebody, "She was the kind of girl you could fart around." <laughs> <laughs> that just the way he had said it um it just stuck in my mind as like the kind of girl you know you would fart around is just the kind of girl that you don't want to you don't want to <laughs> don't want to be and i don't know how how the two connect but it was you know something about i i, I don't know i don't my know. wife works with a woman <laughs> who who swears she has never mm-hmm uh, flatulated in front of her husband ever, right? Not one time. Well, which I think, is, I think. I, I, first off, you must live in a big house. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I think some of those things are just good for relationships. Like, I think that you should. Um, and granted, I'm not somebody who's in a relationship, so, so I'm not, you know, I'm not somebody to be taking advice from, probably. But I think you know, a lot of people get comfortable in their relationships, and I think some mystique is good. I mean, if you have to you know, pass gas, you have to pass gas. But I, I think that, you know, um, you know, some mystique can be good. A little bit of mystery. You say that for a period in your teens that yeah. being loud was a quality that helped you root out good men from the bad, that the bad men had no use for you because you weren't attractive and that your loudness made you even more unappealing. Um, right. But the good men whose interests uh, I couldn't foster with my looks. I drew to me by being smart and funny qualities. I communicated to them via my loudness. In essence, obfuscating my looks. 
Right. Do you still do that today? Uh, do I still do that today? Well, I still absolutely. I mean, you're a librarian, so it's hard to be loud. Right. Um, well, I would rather default to. I would much rather have a sparkling personality um, than I would. Oh God, that's hard to say. Would I rather be good looking or have a good personality? Um, you know, I can say that now. I'll, I would. I would rather have a good personality. I would. You know, I would love to be witty, like Oscar Wilde. You know, like a great conversationalist, like Oscar Levant. Um, all the Oscars. Um, but what I mean in that passage was, and in essence, what it, I'm saying in a very wordy way is what, what your mother says, or your, you know, your cliche mother, um, that it should be your personality that matters. Um, and uh, I, 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 I did for. When I, when I was much younger, I, you know, I had this, I, it's funny, I was thinking about this the other day, I had just, and maybe all children have it, but I had this just default confidence, um, and it started to be taken from me when I was, and you, you as a, a girl, you, you hear it, I mean, men wield it like a weapon, you're ugly, you're ugly, and it's so damaging, um, because you see all around you that so much of women's value is, um, you know, tied into how she looks. So to hear that you're ugly is, you know, to have like a door slammed into your face. Um, so I, I didn't want to accept that. So I developed this like loud, boisterous personality, um, to, to still get myself noticed. Do do you think men respond to that differently as adults than they do as teenagers or is it still, is it just a kind of different version of the same thing? Well, I mean, as you get older, you know, there's this idea of maturity and you're, you know, you would hope that you would come to some kind of self-acceptance, um, you know, but, but by default, I would say um, most men um, tend to have an aversion uh, to, to women who are loud and maybe too uh, overly self-confident. Um, you know, they, they seem to feel threatened by them. Yeah, I think that's probably, that's probably the case for, sadly. Um, so at the end of the book, you, you close with an essay uh, where you talk about Lou Reed and your own being diagnosed as cured of hepatitis C, which is a cat, which is a high risk thing, right? If you're doing a lot of interviews, right. drugs, yeah. and, you know, and you talk about some high risk things you, you had done and it, the, the last essay in the book breathe, seems to breathe uh, at least a some form of air of self acceptance. Mm. You know, the, is that am I reading into that, or is that is that there? I mean, you you seem you seem to be in a place where you're gracious with yourself. Well, I'm happy that I I'm happy is the wrong word. I'm okay with the experiences that I had. I mean, some of them I deliberately sought out. Um, I, I think when I read that essay, I think there's a, a little bit of a sadness to it. Because I'm, you know, reflecting back on um, this friendship that I had had with this girl, um, and uh, you know, she still has hepatitis. I was, I was cured from it, um, and we had this really great, great friendship, um, which would be impossible now. I mean, you have children, you, you, you move on. Um, but to me, that that essay is, is sort of sad. But no, I don't have any. I mean, financially. <laughs> I, you know, I would like to be in a higher financial bracket. And I know my decisions took me to the financial bracket that I'm in. Um, but, you know, I've, I, I, I believe that my experiences gave me insight in, into people, into men. Um, 
<clears throat> so I, I now I don't think that I'm I have much regret except for the fact that you know I'm I live. Uh, you know the poverty level. Do, do you? As somebody who you you seem like you interpret the world through a pretty relational matrix or lens. Is it? Do you, do you have many friends? I mean, are you are you a are you a person that has a lot of relationships and sort of social connectivity uh, in your life? Not so much anymore. I mean, I do. I do have friends that I keep in contact with regularly, but I'm not a person who goes out a lot. Um, you know, I'm kind of a homebody. I love to watch old movies. This seems to come up in every interview that I do that I love old movies. Um, I read a lot. Every day I get up at six o'clock in the morning because I need that quiet. I love that quiet in the morning. Um, what are you I reading re right now? Oh, God, I read so many things. Um, what am I reading right now? Um, her husband about um, Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Um God, uh, I'm finishing a, Cur a Cur Curtis Harrington um, biography. He was a, a filmmaker. Um, the Lonely, uh, the, the Secret Life of the Lonely Doll, um, uh, about Dare Wright, who was a photographer. Mm. Um, God, I read. I was. I've just finished Roxanne Hunger. Uh, Roxanne Gay's book Hunger. Um, I need to stop doing this though. But I, I tend to read like five books at once, and it's not good. I need to, but I'm just such a glutton. I'm a, a book glutton. Oh. You, you you mentioned in one essay, well, you mentioned Mork and Mindy, which I love. I, me I remember that there was a, a, a Happy Days Mork uh, Mindy crossover. That's where, like Fonzie I, was like doing right. his powers. He was yeah, I love that. But um, you also mentioned Axl Rose and one of his songs and and it and how it played into some developmental things for you. When I read that, I I was. I, my friend David is uh, David Zoll. He he does uh, he runs a website and a magazine, and he does some music public criticism. And he wrote this about Axel Rose. He said Axel said um, after Appetite for Destruction, I just want to bury Appetite. I don't want to live my life through that one album. I have to bury it and do something new. And David writes, What does one do for an encore? If you're Axel Rose, you take an extreme situation and make it even more so. He knew full well that Appetite for Destruction could come to define them, a gold standard that would loom over everything GNR did, a measure by which all their subsequent efforts would be judged, inevitably falling short. To call it the fulfillment of all musical righteousness wouldn't be too far-fetched, which means that if Appetite was born out of freedom, from Lafayette, the church, authorities of all kind, then its success reintroduced the albatross of judgment. The double album follow-up, Use Your Illusion, would prove one of Rock's most fascinating documents of a band struggle with the law of success. Like anyone finally attuned to the devastating power of judgment, Axel was dead set on escaping it. Right. Well, but, I, and I, but I also think when you have some great success, people naturally are waiting for whatever the follow-up to be, to be not as good. I mean, you set the barometer so high for yourself. Um, and he seemed so angry by that time, too. I mean, he just seemed angry, angry, angry. Um, for a long time, um, so yeah. I mean, I, you you see, you seem like someone in your writing. You said you don't have a lot of regrets. You you seem like someone who has who has who dealt with the sting of judgment and condemnation and come out on the other side again with a patience for yourself. Um, <laughs> um, patience for myself, or at least a kindness. Yeah, I mean, I I try for myself i mean i still i beat myself up in the in, in the normal ways um 
you know, um, I have to go, I have to do an interview with um, Salon, which, I mean, I, how do you think this is going? <laughs> how am I going to do in front of the, the cameras of Salon? But I'm, you know, thinking to myself, like, you know, what should I wear? And I'm, like, looking at my legs in the mirror. I mean, I still, I beat myself up in those ways. I mean, that's probably never going to change. Um, I can be very hard on myself when it comes to my writing. Um I obsess over details and I, you know, I go over things over and over and over again, which may not be obvious <laughs> from, the, from the finished product, from the finished product. And maybe, you know, maybe she needed to go over this a little bit more. Um, but this is new for me. I mean, I've, I've slogged through the trenches of small press stuff for a long time with nobody really expecting me to explain where my rating came from or like, uh, my motivations. Um, so I'll beat myself up over this <laughs> when we're done talking. Um, but I think this is a skill, though, too, learning to, to um, you know, speak for yourself. I mean, they've had finishing schools for this stuff. Like in, in, in old Hollywood, you used to, you know, they would send you to somebody who would. They still do it now. I mean, you're, the publicist stands there. and um, So... Yeah, I don't think you need finishing school. I think you speak really well for your prose. And I think your prose is a real invitation to, well, I would to, never... to people engaging themselves, which is right. a beautiful thing. Well, I would never want the actual me to take away from that. I mean, that will be my new my new way to beat myself up now. But I mean, I, I'm this is a learning experience. Too. I mean, and like I said, I write to think. That's, you know, me sitting down, getting my, and that's another thing I love about writing. I mean, you know, they talk about, there used to be that de deodorant commercial, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. With white writing, you do. You know, I mean, you put that line down, if you don't like it, you take it. Well, it's a, a wonderful self that comes across in the pages of Girls Gone Old, and thank you for writing it and spending some time talking with me. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And please do check out Girls Gone Old by Fiona Helmsley. It's a great book of essays. You will not be sorry you bought it. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.